millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the AccuWeather Podcast. And this week, we have a couple of interesting, really interesting topics. Uh, The first is what it's like to be on the forecast floor, to be a forecaster here at AccuWeather. Yeah, it is a large collaborative effort with a lot of really, really smart people to protect property, people, to keep them safe in severe weather when it comes your way. It's it's a very interesting process. Right, and we're talking to Marshall Moss. He's the uh, vice president of forecasting, so he'll be talking to us about that. And then also, I know that the 4th of July is over with, and you might be like, ah, oh, but guess what? There's a lot of great stuff to see in the sky. There's still plenty of things <laughs> to see in the sky. It doesn't have to be fireworks. You're absolutely right. Right. We are going to be talking to Dave Samuel. Uh, He's a senior meteorologist here at AccuWeather. And he's going to be talking to us about astronomy and what we can expect to see in the summer night sky and some uh, specific events coming up that you won't want to miss. From our global headquarters in State College, Pennsylvania, it's the AccuWeather podcast. Here's your host, Regina Miller. I'm joined in the studio by Marshall Moss. He's the Vice President of Forecasting. Thanks for joining me today, Marshall. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Tell me about how long you've been doing weather and your career. So, as far as my career, I started at AccuWeather back in 1994, but certainly, as most meteorologists have, uh, got interested in the weather back when I was very young. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember a couple of specific occasions. I remember back... uh, we were just talking before we came on air about sports and being an Islanders fan and how painful that is right now. But um, <laughs> and I, I'm like, I'm you're filling me in on all this information. I'm learning a lot, a lot from you and Ken because I, <laughs> I didn't realize that there was problems with the Jets. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, being, <laughs> but, being a suffering fan and rooting for teams that just <laughs> rip your life out of you. So you're from Long Island. I am from Long Island originally. I went to the State University of New York for college at Oswego. Oh, okay. um, that's where I got my meteorology degree. Um, but you know, gained interest in meteorology at a young age. Again, most meteorologists do. They have right. some event while they're young that gets them into the field, that gets them into it and excited. Mine, uh, I have two that I remember. One um, was a severe thunderstorm. I remember it was during an Islander playoff game, I believe, in uh, Mont- against Montreal, I believe, 1985. How um, old were you? I would have been 14 at the time, and oh, okay. I saw hail for the first time. Um, and it looked like rocks that we had in my garden. And I'm thinking, why are these rocks falling off my roof? Uh-huh. I have what, no size idea what you? it was. What size you think it, it was? It was a, a decent size, probably uh, inch and a half, couple inches mm. oh, um, wow. in okay. diameter. Um, and it just seemed like rocks falling off the roof. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what is this? And it sort of you know, got me intrigued to look into it and see. Um, and then, of course, same year, Hurricane Gloria came through that area, being on the coast as I was and seeing the damage it caused and, and the flooding and everything that was involved with that. That really piqued my interest as far as meteorology. So, How was you your know, family's uh, place? My house actually was not damaged. Several of my neighbors had large trees fall on their houses. Oh, okay. um, we had canals that led into the Great South Bay across the street from me. They overflowed. Um, so there were some flooding problems for those houses. 
I mean, it, it wasn't a complete catastrophe like some other storms were. It wasn't a Sandy or Katrina, but it was certainly enough damage um, that it got me interested and inspired in following the weather. And, you know, from, from an early age, I remember back from the early 80s, just watching weather on TV nonstop. Just, mm-hmm. It was just my interest. It was my passion. And I sort of stuck with it. And, you know, those that know me know I, I like to argue. So I, I had two paths that oh, I was Oh, good, debating. because I was going to ask you about uh, arguing about forecasts coming up. But you go oh, ahead. Yeah. What were the two paths you no. were uh, debating about? Two paths were meteorology or law. Oh, and the, the yeah. deciding factor was I didn't want to stay in school long enough to go for law. <laughs> That was really the big deciding factor. But as as Ken here will tell you and others, I'll sit and argue with the best of them. I, I will debate. I will usually win. Me too. I'm the same way because my with my I'm the youngest of six, and everybody in my family had an opinion about something, and it was a sport. That was our. It was. I was like, we argue as a sport, and we're enjoying ourselves when we're arguing. Yep. <laughs> so. uh, two much older brothers, eight and ten years older than me, so I took the abuse growing up, and you know, learned how to fight for everything I had there as well. Same here. That's it. Must that must be it? It's having yep. the older because I had four older brothers, so I learned to to uh, talk fast and run <laughs> that, <laughs> as well as take the blame for everything they did right right exactly well what is your favorite thing that you try to forecast what really piques your interest the most so i went back to what i said about what got me into the weather severe weather and tropical was always my passion um i very quickly settled into our business to business operation which was uh warning and alerting customers for potential severe weather um mm-hmm. doing our tropical forecast and so forth and i absolutely loved what i did um and i remember you know my dream going into college and through college was always to get into work at the national weather service um and this is not disparaging them in any way i have a ton of great friends at the weather service but you know i actually four years after starting here got an offer from the weather service and turned it down after realizing i actually love what i do yeah um you know i was following the severe weather wherever it was and the other thing that I think would have been interesting for you is probably you were actually talking to people who were in direct line of impact. Yes. I'm assuming you were calling them on the phone or how were you, uh, you yeah, know. We would send notifications in a yeah. host of ways, certainly verbally on the phone. We would send them at the time faxes. and Yeah. So you build relationships yes. with the people in the path of these storms and you're giving them you life-saving to, information. And you learn to communicate in their way which is another important aspect of what we do. It's not just making the right forecast. It's communicating it in a way that's understandable and helps people make the decisions they need to make. You know, if somebody's coming to a meteorologist, they're coming because they need to make a decision, whether it's business or personal, doesn't matter. Um, and you need to be able to give them a forecast that's accurate, that's timely, um, that's detailed and impact-driven, that's understandable. You know, there's so many meteorologists have trouble explaining the weather in a way that the average person actually understands and consumes that information. Um, or when you're talking to a business that's in the language that they're using within their organizations to make decisions. Right. And that makes sense. The matters. impact. Impact weather. Impact is Sometimes what we, as meteorologists, I think we can... Uh, lose sight a little bit because you get so caught up in like the the models and the numbers and the upper air dynamics that you can kind of become a little too high-minded for really what it is you're trying to provide to the person the average person on the ground every day so there's that constant like going back and forth in how you're uh, communicating that Right, and that's one of the great ways in which AccuWeather succeeds. It's built on you know fifty plus years of experience on how to communicate the forecast and the impacts of the weather 
on the people or on the organizations that we're working with. What was your most memorable weather event? Was it like what you were talking about with uh, Hurricane so Gloria? Or? There are three hurricanes that really strike me um, as most memorable events from a career standpoint. Okay. One would obviously be Katrina. Mm-hmm. Uh, one would be Hurricane Sandy, and one would be Hurricane Maria just this past year. Mm-hmm. Um, Hurricane Katrina. I think that know, impacted, like I was just thinking about when I was watching that home crying, it impacted the, the whole U.S. Yeah. watching that. And I remember I was doing our tropical forecasts at that time and the messaging we were using and um, some of the map discussions that we had, which is where we all collaborate to come up with what our forecasts are, because all of our forecasts here are consensus-based. There's no Marshall weather or Regina weather or Ken weather. It's a consensus-based forecast. So all the meteorologists come together to make the decisions on the big events and and the forecast changes that are needed. Uh, I can state consensus building is not always friendly. I Um, I was going to ask you if some of those big storms, if there's like a lot of heated debate over. Yes. And I remember Katrina particularly because of some of the debate we had with some of the wording that we were going to use for that, such as speaking about how catastrophic the storm would be for New Orleans and how the city would be flooded and could remain underwater for days or weeks, um, which sadly turned out to be accurate. But that's not something you take lightly when you're going out and saying it. And we had some very heated debate around that. At the end of the day, consensus was we felt strongly enough that we were going to go and say it. And, you know, there's a very big difference between sharing information that's pertinent and important to people's lives and hype. And one of the things that we work very hard here to do is not hype, because if you hype, people stop listening to your message. Yeah, it's, it's Chicken Little. Lost. It's Chicken right. Little. Mm-hmm. But certainly sharing information that's important to people's lives, that can help save lives and protect property, we need to get that information out there. Mm-hmm. And we had some very heated debates about that, and I remember coming to the consensus and then having um, you know, our team sharing that information all over television, radio, um, in newspapers, um, and all of our forecasts about how catastrophic these impacts were going to be, it, it's humbling. I and mean, seeing it happen, certainly. Because one side is, this is what we're forecasting, this is what we expect to happen. But then seeing it happen is very sad. Yeah. Yeah. You have to actually watch it happen and watch the people suffer. Even though, like, okay, you know, one side is, we got it right. You know, because if we're wrong, we're going to take a lot of egg in our face. The other right. side is, these people are suffering. Yeah. And that's something that you, you have to contend with. You would pray that that's not the direction it's going in, but when you're seeing it on all the models, you're mm-hmm. recognizing this is what's going to happen. And it's it's a risk because you're saying we trust in our forecast enough that we're going to say this, that right. we're going cuz I I do remember being on the floor during Harvey mm-hmm. and the rainfall mounts. Yep. And trying to determine how we convey the rain, like the just the amount of rain that they were going to be dealing with. And even like a week ahead, it was mm-hmm. looking like there could be a major amount of rain. So there's the timing issue, too, of how soon probably do we get out there with this? And how do you explain to people what 30 plus inches of rain looks like? What does that feel like? Because, mm-hmm. again, that's the information you have to share with people so they can make the right decisions. It's not just you're going to get more than 30 inches of rain. Nobody understands what that means. It's explaining the impacts and how bad it's going to be so that they make the right decisions and, when necessary, get out of harm's way and protect their families, their property, their pets, um, whatever it is that they need to do in advance of this situation. Mm-hmm. So one of the other storms, Sandy, I mentioned. Oh, yes, right. Um, and that was a more personal one because 
I am from Long Island, um, so I have family on Long Island, and certainly, you know, another communication lesson to understand for anybody in meteorology is that people make decisions based on their experiences. So the year before Sandy, Irene came up and it didn't cause the damage level that was anticipated. So then Sandy is coming and there's mixed messaging coming out ahead of it. So on one side, the National Hurricane Center is saying, we don't believe it's going to be tropical still when it makes landfall. So we're not going to issue hurricane watches, hurricane warnings, which then led to some extremely problematic communications from government officials, such as the mayor of New York, who uh, leading up to the storm said, we're not going to take some actions because we're told it's not going to be a hurricane when it makes landfall. The exact opposite of the messaging that should have been out there. But having family that lives right on the water on Long Island, I know what it took for me to communicate with them. And finally, on the day before Sandy came in, getting them to agree to move inland. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing they did. You know, my middle brother actually had water up into the second level of his house. Wow. A couple of feet up in the second level of his house. My other brother was extremely lucky. The water surrounded his house, got into the basement and the laundry room, but not the main part of the house. But that was a major catastrophic event. Um, not just there, obviously, all along the coast mm-hmm. and even back into the Appalachians where they had one to three feet of snow and blizzard conditions and all the problems that caused at that time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then seeing again, much like I said, with Contreat and the suffering that followed it, you know, for weeks and months as they tried to not just rebuild but get back to human standards, get mm-hmm. gas back. I know for Long Island it took weeks to get gasoline back into the gas stations in many cases. Right. Um, to get food, to get water. You know, the human suffering that's evolved in these events is just sobering. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, knowing, again, we got the forecast right and we did everything we could to communicate to people, but they're still dealing with the after effects. And then Maria, as I said, which, again, we knew before Maria formed that was going to be a beast heading for Puerto Rico. I remember, I believe it was Lee, while we were forecasting that, we were talking about there was a cluster of thunderstorms to its southeast, um, that Lee wasn't going to be an issue. Watch those thunderstorms. They were going to rapidly develop as they moved to the, toward the Caribbean um, and become Maria. Um, mm-hmm. and, I mean, you knew for days in advance that Maria was right in the crosshairs of, of a, a monster. And that monster was going to ravage that island, which had already been impacted by hurricanes that season, uh, by major hurricanes. And this was going to be a direct hit. Mm-hmm. And the infrastructure being what it was, how bad it would be. And again, getting that message out, but also knowing in some cases, there's a lot of things, a lot of people that aren't going to have any actions they can take. We did talk to uh, our Karuska Matos Horta, mm-hmm. in one of our podcasts. And, you know, she shared some of that with us uh, about what she dealt with when she was living through that. Tell me about what it takes to do just your daily forecast. Like, what does it look like for a meteorologist sitting down? Like, what kind of models do you use? How many models Mm -hmm. you use? How do you select what to use? Does everybody have a different opinion? So, yeah, I mean, all meteorologists will have their own preferences of what they look at. Um, You know, certainly we have access to all of the models that are available. One of the great things here at AccuWeather, our team works with governments around the world to aggregate more data than anybody else has. So we have observations, models, lightning, satellite information, any data that's available to help us make these decisions, make these forecasts. We have our own proprietary models as well as all the government-run models. Certainly we have the full suite of the European model, which everybody knows is the best. Um, But there's so much data out there that you need to have ways of quickly reviewing it and making decisions. Um, And we have tools that help us do that, but certainly we also have automated systems that help us do that. So 
forecasts that emanate from AccuWeather outside of warnings and news stories and the like. But your daily forecasts come from a digital forecast system that is created with preliminary forecasts based on all of these different inputs, both publicly available and proprietary, to initialize a forecast. But one of the great things that separate AccuWeather is that the meteorologists have the final say on every forecast that comes out. You know, we have a team of over 100 operational meteorologists that are making these decisions, and they're making it consensus-based because we know statistically that consensus beats the individual. There are very few individuals that can beat the consensus and certainly not do it regularly. So that is our approach, and we use a human-in-the-loop process, as we call it. So our database is constantly refreshing as this new data is coming in, but the forecasters have the final say on what goes out. So it's knowing where we can add value to what those forecasts are. It's knowing where the models and the inputs have biases that we can correct. It's knowing where those high impact events are going to be and making sure that we're including all the detail and all the language around it to communicate it as effectively as possible so that we help people make the right decisions in their lives. Now, being a meteorologist at AccuWeather means wearing many hats because that's just the starting point is the forecast. But the real role is the communication. It's Mm -hmm. getting that forecast out, not just to our digital sites, where over 2 billion people around the globe access those forecasts and data each day, but it's also on our radio stations. We serve over 900 radio stations around the country. In our newspapers, we're on over 700 newspapers around the world. It's to our TV stations that we work with in a variety of ways, many of which we work with on-air talent to help them best communicate the forecast and um, not just what the forecast is, but also what could go wrong so that that information can be shared to our own team of television broadcasters and, and meteorologists, because we are all one big team here that is working to get out a clear, consistent message to help people make the right decisions. So all of that has to be done through the course of my shift. Mm-hmm. Um, each person plays their part in the team to make sure that as a team we succeed. So we're called AccuWeather. So, so how do we double check our accuracy? So there are multiple ways we do that. Um, and that follows in nicely as a great segue from what we were just talking about. Obviously, AccuWeather is accuracy and weather, so the accuracy matters. Our tagline, superior accuracy, we stand by that every day. Um, So I'll talk about a couple of ways that we do, or a few ways that we do it. Uh, One being a third-party site um, that exists called Forecast Watch that verifies forecasts from various outlets all over the world. We've had multiple reports coming out showing that we are the most accurate provider of public forecasts. Um, We had a report for 2015 and 16 about how we were the most accurate on temperatures, on winds and on precipitation. And just about a month ago, they released a new report showing that AccuWeather was the most accurate public provider for maximum temperatures, uh, precipitation, and wind globally for the aggregated years of 2015 to 2017. Right. So statistically, that shows that we're the most accurate. But accuracy doesn't just fall in statistics. One provider being, for example, a tenth of a degree better on average on temperatures isn't what helps people's lives as much. It's the high-impact events. It's those few days a year where the weather truly matters to you. Mm -hmm. And for that, we have teams internally that review the forecasts for those high-impact events, as well as looking at what our competitors were forecasting and put together what we call proof of performances. Um, which show and outline what our forecasts were over time versus what our competitors were, not just for the accuracy of the forecast, but for how well it's communicated. How well do we share the impacts 
of what the weather right. is you can have people. all the knowledge in the world if you can't get it across so other people understand it so it helps them make the right decisions <laughs> right. exactly it doesn't matter mm-hmm. so we put together hundreds per year of these proof of performances now are we the best on every single one of them of course not mm-hmm. but on the vast majority we are absolutely the best both on the accuracy and the communication and for the ones where we're not, and even for the ones that we are, we then hold postmortems to make sure that we're learning from every event as it happens mm-hmm. and taking that forward. Um, and then we also, while we have that third-party site measuring our forecast accuracy, we also do our own verifications. Mm-hmm. So it's both ways, and we'll make sure that we're the best on all ways and use that information to consistently improve for continuous improvement of our forecasts, of our communications, and of everything that we're doing. Yeah, I've been out on the floor when they do the uh, postmortems, which are always really interesting. It's like a football team going back and looking at the game tapes <laughs> to see where do we get it right, and where do we need to work on Pretty this much. next time. Yeah, and, and it's you know it's learning you know uh, what models again. That's where you find out models have different biases. Mm-hmm. You realize a certain model may have a consistent trend that they're too southwest uh, with a storm leading up to the event, and then it adjusts with time. Um, there's a whole variety of ways that those are useful in learning, not just for those that same type of event, but for all events. Also, tell me about some of your uh, recommendations for meteorologists on how to prepare for getting a job in meteorology. Oh, that's a great question and something certainly pertinent right now. Um, I've seen a lot of chatter on Twitter about this recently. And, you know, one of the favorite parts of my job is going and talking to students, uh, both for recruiting and helping them because, listen, meteorology is a very small field. Um, and while, you know, out in front, we're competing with many other companies, behind the scenes, we're actually friends and working together in a lot of ways. Um, so we have a lot of shared knowledge. A couple of things that are critical. One of the ideas that I've talked a lot about throughout this conversation has been communication skills. And anything somebody can do to maximize their communication skills, both written and verbally, are essential. So my first piece of advice is for everybody, get your face out of your cell phones. Oh, great idea. <laughs> Learn how to look people in the eye and communicate. Right. That's my advice to my kids. That's my advice to pretty much everybody, too. Yep. It's my Three pet Three teenagers peeve. at home, and I'm yelling yeah. at them constantly for it. Stop right. staring at your cell phone, look people in the eye, and have a conversation. Yeah. Or at least pick up the phone and have a conversation once in a while. Life is not spent on emojis. Right. Exactly. I agree with you 100%. But it's always kind of funny. Once in a while, we'll get a resume or cover letter that has some text-type shorthand or... Really? An emoji on it, and it's it's baffling. So kids, don't do that. I, yes. Like young college grads, no. do not do that. <laughs> when you send in a cover letter resume, not just you need to make sure it's perfect. You want to have a person or even better, two people um, review it to make sure that it's free of errors, that it shares the right information, that it sends the right message of you because that is the representation of you and your brand ultimately. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're trying to sell. You know, For students, when I talk to them, I'll go talk to a class or, or, or a big group at a conference and I always point out, look around at all the people around you because there are limited jobs in the field and you're competing with every person around you for that job. So how are you differentiating yourself from them? Is it your superior communication skills? Is it multiple disciplines like programming or GIS or um, other ways that you can bring value to an organization beyond what others can? Because mm-hmm. if you're looking around and you can't think of ways to differentiate yourself, guess what? You're not getting yeah, that opportunity. Yeah, because the cream's going to rise to the top there. Exactly. So you got to, yeah. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, communication skills are essential. Multiple disciplines are essential. Networking is essential. Again, jobs are limited. Getting to conferences, learning who the decision makers are at companies, who are the hiring managers, talking to them. And it's not just going up to them at a career fair and saying hi. 
because I know when I go to the career fairs at the annual uh, American Meteorological Society conference, for example, I can tell you I speak to hundreds of students. I'm not going to remember most of their names. Who I remember are the ones that come up to me during the week after that and oh, remind yes. me who they are and talk to me again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a couple of students that uh, I'll always remember for how excellently they did this um, with making sure I remembered their name, what they're into, what their interests are, um, and what their strengths are. Right. Checking back. Checking right. back with you because, uh, you know, to make sure you stay in touch. Yeah, and just having communications, getting to know each other. Again, I'll remember you that way. That's a way of getting a job. Internships mm-hmm. are critical, you know, for a variety of reasons. One, many internships lead to job opportunities. But two, you know, early in your career, and that's the time to make mistakes and learn from them, to learn what you like and what you don't like. Internships are outstanding for that. You may get an internship and say, wow, I love this. Or you may get an internship in doing what you thought you wanted to do and realize this really isn't for me. Yeah. That's the time to learn that, not when you're 30 years old. Right. Exactly. So <laughs> right. it's making those mistakes early on, learning from them and setting yourself up for success. Because if you can really tie your passion to your career, life is good. Listen, I love my job. I love coming into work every day. Mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine being at a job that I hated. Well, what, what, that's the expression, right? If you loved your job, uh, then you never work a day in your life. Exactly. Right. And I absolutely love what I do. I love the people I work with. We have a tremendous team here. Coming to work is not a chore. Well, thank you. And that's you. a great thing. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Marshall. Oh, thank you for your time. We would love to hear from you. Yep. I just want to remind uh, our listeners, if you want to uh, have us discuss a certain show topic, just send us an email at accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. I'm joined in the studio now by Dave Samuel. He's a senior meteorologist here at AccuWeather. So thanks for sitting down yep. with me today, Dave. Sure, thanks for having me. I want to talk about what we can expect to see in the night sky because you're really an astronomy buff, aren't you? Yeah, sure am. I was lucky enough to um, start doing the astronomy blog for AccuWeather here so uh, you can see it on the um, AccuWeather.com site. Um, really, I mean, I was already into astronomy. That really, like, took it to the next level. So, Tell me about, like, what for beginners. I have not been much into astronomy. I have friends yeah. that try to tell me what I'm looking for in the night sky. So mm-hmm. kind of, like, tell me about what yeah. I should look for out there. I guess, you know, some of the basics are just, like, know your directions. Then you'll be able to track, you know, where the, the moon's coming up. And then you'll start to be able to, you know, follow where the planets are rising. Because the moon and the planets all sort of line up together. Mm-hmm following the planets is really cool because they're the brightest things in the sky a lot of times people don't realize that they think hey what's that bright star over there well if it's shockingly bright it's probably one of the planets that's close to earth oh okay yeah so people i've been getting a lot of questions uh over the past few months like ah after the sun goes down there's a super bright star in the western sky uh it's it's venus it's a planet Venus. Oh, is it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Venus is just so much brighter than all the other planets, let alone stars, uh, simply because it's just, we found out like, okay, the reason is that the sun's just reflecting off of the cloud tops. If the moon was covered in clouds, it would be like 10 times brighter than it is right now. So the moon's surface actually doesn't really reflect a lot of sunlight. Not oh. anywhere. Like it, the, the surface of Venus, the cloud tops on Venus reflect so much more sunlight than the moon does that it just makes it super bright. So oh. that's just kind of cool. You never would think that, but 
that's just the planet's shrouded in clouds, so it just uh, it makes it really bright as we see it. If I wanted to buy a telescope or something, or wanted something to view the sky, maybe I'm a little bit past the beginner stage. I'm starting mm-hmm. to move into a little more advanced stage. What sh- what should I look for? You can get a real simple telescope, a refractor telescope, which is kind of like the long, skinny tube that they, you know, Galileo used back in the day when he uh, started astronomy, basically. Um, and those are cheap. You can get them for like twenty or thirty bucks. Oh a wow, that's great. You can just great. set that up on your tripod in the back yard and um, you have a little sight on there you try to like during the daytime the idea is to sight it in with something you can see then at night you can point that to a star then look through your eyepiece and see it now is there uh any like uh websites or anything that i you i know you write for accuweather mm-hmm. uh for our website about this yeah yeah we have some information about that um uh, the nasa they have a really nice website where um they put together a sky events calendar uh, for the year and I think they do multiple years at a time you can just go in there and click on 2018 and click on the year version of the calendar or you can view by month and it'll show you like all the moon phases uh, when the moon's gonna be close to a planet also the major meteor showers and you know a few other things that are just you know interesting to see throughout the year so they they seem to um, have most of the events on there in a calendar form it's very easy to look at and, so you know, uh, is there anything coming up in the near future that we should keep an eye out for. yeah definitely it's um the way the planets are lined up at night you have a chance to see the moon near any number of planets every month it'll be uh near jupiter i guess we're going to cycle around so it was just near mars and now um, after the new moon so towards the middle of the month the moon will be near venus in the evening as a thin crescent and then it'll be near jupiter and then saturn and then mars uh, within a week of each other so that's mm-hmm. just um that's something we could see almost every month Um, And on top of that, uh, Mars is uh, going to make a lot of news headlines this month. It's already starting to get some attention, which it should because it's very bright. Mars's orbit and our orbit are going to line up. So uh, we're going to be like right next to Mars. And the pass we're making is going to be unusually close. So Mars will appear very bright. It's already very bright in the night sky, but it'll look really bright at the end of July. That's when we make our closest approach to it before, you know, our, our orbit's a little faster than Mars. will kind of speed around ahead of it. So we only line up with Mars once every two years, but this, this occasion, it'll be uh, very close. Oh, so, great. Yeah, it'll be, it, it's, it's shocking. Most people haven't seen Mars yet because it doesn't rise until after midnight. Although now that's starting to rise a little earlier and it'll rise earlier and earlier and be very bright the rest of the summer. So that'll be something to see because it's bright red and pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. And yeah. then is there any uh, meteor showers or anything like that that yes. we should keep an eye out for? Yeah, it's interesting. Around the same time um, Mars reaches its opposition, we call it, when the Earth passes right between it and the sun and basically our closest approach, um, there will be several small meteor showers that could combine to be a decent you know, meteor shower event for a few days at the end of July. The opposition, I believe, is the 27th. Uh, so, yeah, so that'll be one at the end of July, seeing Mars, and then a, f- a few of these uh, weaker meteor showers. But then the main uh, meteor shower, my favorite, is the Perseids in August. And a lot of people see the Perseids, whether they realize it or not, because it's summertime. It happens in the middle of August this year. It's August 11th, August 12th. It's a time of year people are out anyway. Yeah, people are exactly. out in the evening yeah. doing yeah. things in the summer. The weather's nice, so you're outside. Plus, it's usually clear, too. So mm-hmm. that's going to be, I mean, that's if you're going to circle one astronomical event to see in the year, that would 
circle the Perseids. Again, the peak nights, I think, on the 11th. It's a Saturday night. Um, Perfect. That's what I mean. Most people yeah, are going to be out. Yeah, it's lining up the weekend, too. So, you know, that mm-hmm. works out nicely. So it's it, it, sh- it should be good. It's, it's a real consistent shower. Every year you kind of get the same thing. You know what you're going to get. A lot of the meteors will leave smoke trails across the sky that like, glitter for a few seconds and then they disappear. So it's just really cool. Okay, so well, that's thanks. That's definitely worth seeing. Great. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate mm-hmm. you sitting down with me. Yeah, no problem. And thanks to our guest who sat down with us for this week's episode of the AccuWeather Podcast. And next week, you're a big fan of Shark Week, right, Andy? Who isn't a fan of Shark Week? <laughs> Somebody that's afraid of sharks. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Well, some people that are afraid <laughs> of sharks actually are, are even more interested right, in Shark Week, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, well, you're fascinated by what <laughs> yeah. is terrifying. So anyway, we are uh, talking to Professor Stephen Kajera. He's from the Shark Lab at Florida Atlantic University. And he's going to be talking to us about shark migration. And then Brett Anderson is going to also kind of talk to us about uh, changing temperatures and sea surface and that type of thing. So we have that coming up next week. So you'll want to tune in. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to the AccuWeather podcast, giving you the stories behind the weather, discussions on trending weather topics, and so much more. New episodes every Thursday. Just search for AccuWeather on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.